Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Great. And now a portion of God's Word. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world was, has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. And the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge for the glory of God. To face, in the face of Jesus Christ, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus, is that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and I, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bringing us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake that the grace extends to more and more people, that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light, for this light monetary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of God. Hello? There we go. Hello, I'm an elder here at Trinity Baptist Church, Ross Queener, and um, I'm just here to introduce our pastor for today. Uh, Josh Wilson uh, comes to us from Michigan, went to the University of Michigan, and got an MA in Hebrew Bible. <laughs> Applause for University of Michigan. Uh, I'm an Ohio State grad, so I'm just oh. loving you by faith. So, uh, he received an MA in Hebrew Bible from University of Michigan and is 
starting his PhD in English education at Columbia University. All right, rock on, that's great. Um, he and his wife, Danielle, are teachers at Geneva School, and uh, they've been here in Manhattan for a couple of years. Uh, he has an aspiration to climb all 46 high peaks in the Adirondacks. I really can't resonate with that. That's awesome. Uh, Although he's only climbed one so far, so he's not sure if, you know, the math works out for him to complete it. Yeah. But we're happy to have him here today. So welcome, Joshua. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for this warm welcome and a beautiful time of worship in such a beautiful church. Uh, we feel welcome to be here. My wife is up here somewhere with the kids, I think. Um, but let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be here, uh, to study your word together, and to take, uh, to draw encouragement from your word. And I pray that it would be encouraging, pray that it would be nourishing, and uh, that it would be just what's needed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The church in Corinth was the worst church in the world. And I feel confident saying that, in part because there weren't that many churches yet. Uh, but even if there had been, it was really bad. Things were really bad in Corinth. And uh, if you've ever looked at the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll probably notice that it's like a list of really rough issues going on, each one worse than the previous, it seems like. And I can imagine that when Paul's letter was read... Uh, to this church, it must have fallen like a bombshell. It must have been very discouraging and even maybe disheartening. Um, but that was 1 Corinthians, and our passage today is 2 Corinthians. And these two letters could not be more different because uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is the one on the chopping block, so to speak. He is the one in the defendant's chair. And uh, that's because some people had come into the church in Corinth after Paul had left and they accused him of not being a true apostle. They said that he was trying to extort money, uh, that he had basically been an imposter and a fraud. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians is in the position of having to write uh, to this church, the very church that he founded, and uh, defend himself and his ministry. If I were Paul, I probably wouldn't have felt like wasting my time. I probably would have figured, they must not have figured out my message. They must not have really believed. It must have gone over. Something went wrong uh, because they're accusing me of not being an apostle and they have all of these problems that I had to address. But what I find amazing is that Paul does not give up on the church. In fact, he reserves his most personal, heartfelt, vulnerable letter, I think, that he ever wrote. One of the most vulnerable letters ever written, I think, to this church. He bears his soul to them because to the Apostle Paul, the church in Corinth is still very much God's instrument in the city of Corinth. And we're going to draw some encouragement from his words to them uh, today. And we're only going to notice uh, three things. And the first one is in verses 1 through 6. And the first one is to understand why the gospel is rejected. Paul wanted the people to understand why the gospel was rejected. And I think the Corinthians probably looked around and thought, if this gospel is true, why aren't there more people here who believe it? Big city, small church, if it's true, how come everybody isn't here? And evidently, one of the accusations that Paul 
has to respond to is that his gospel was too intellectual. It was for, uh, you know, really smart people. And this is uh, implied by the term veiled. He says it's, the, some are saying that the gospel is veiled. Even if our gospel is veiled, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's his response. They say your gospel is just for the intellectual. He says, no, it's, it's not hidden. It's not veiled except to those who are perishing. What does that mean? In other words, it's veiled to those who are embracing a life that leads to death. So the gospel is not rejected, he says, because it's hard to understand. It's rejected because it is hard to accept. And the best way I could think of illustrating this, and you'll have, you'll have to forgive me, but I think you'll remember this, and it was the best way I could find to illustrate it. There, there's a video out there of uh, an interview of a millennial for a job, and it's a fake interview. It's just for um, entertainment purposes. And I think it's a little hard on millennials, so let me just say that up front. Um, some of my best friends are millennials, and there are way too many stereotypes. And uh, in case any of them hear this, I don't want to lose any friends. Uh, but it's, it's way too stereotyping. But it, it's funny because in the interview, one of the things the man says is, if you work here, you'll have to arrive by 8 a.m. And um, she says, I don't understand. And he says, what don't you understand? And she says, the words that you just spoke. I don't understand. And he says, well, we like to get started pretty early here. And uh, we're, we usually get going at 8 a.m. And she goes on to explain that she usually gets up around 10 a.m. and stops by Starbucks uh, to get her coffee. So 10.45 works better for her, <laughs> she says. Uh, so what's the point? When she says, I don't understand, that's not actually what she means. She really means, I don't like it. And what came out was, I don't understand. Actually, the, rev- the reverse is true. The reason it doesn't make sense to her is because she doesn't like it. And the same is often true of the gospel. Often the rejection of the gospel is not about the truth claims that it's making. It's not an intellectual thing, but the new requirements that it might place on someone's life. So there is a spiritual, not just an intellectual component. So what does knowing this do for the church? So what? Uh, What does this do for the church in Corinth? Well, I think it does two things. Uh, For one thing... It frees them. They can't remove the veil themselves. They can bear witness to the truth. But the veil removal is part of God's work. So knowing this clarifies their role as they rub shoulders with the people in the bustling city of Corinth. But it also brings humility because, you see, nobody could look around and say, the reason I believe the gospel is because I'm intellectually superior. If those people were just smarter, they would know the gospel too. That isn't the case at all. Paul says to the Romans, and such were some of you. He reminds them, the veil was over your eyes at one point as well, and that was intended to bring them humility. And you know, in the Old Testament, uh, when God says to Israel, I did not choose you because you were the most numerous people, it's as though God is saying, you know, I didn't choose you because I saw you and thought, boy, these people really have their act together. I want them on my side. The mystery of grace is that there is no evident reason for who receives and believes the gospel. So Paul says, understand why the gospel is rejected. Knowing this frees them and it brings humility. A few years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, I was out uh, golfing with somebody that I had been wanting to golf with. He'd been wanting to golf with me. And um, it was in Pennsylvania and it was a very long golf course for those of you that are golfers. Uh, Lots of 
uh, long driving holes. And what I didn't know at the time was that my friend had just qualified for the senior PGA Tour. And he hadn't told me that. And I was used to beating the people that I golfed with. Um, in fact, if this means anything to anyone, he beat Fred Couples in the 1977 or 78 Georgia Amateur Championship. Fred Couples is one of the best golfers ever, at least he, he was. And so I struggled to keep up with this guy as we golfed together, and I was losing. And pretty soon I realized I had no chance of winning. I don't mean like just that day, ever. I never, ever had a chance of ever winning. But the most memorable part of the day was um, a long par five, and I hit my golf ball as well as I ever have. I swung as hard as I could, and I hit it perfectly. And then he got up and hit his shot, and it landed 30 yards past mine. And it didn't even look like he was trying to hit the ball. So what's the point? You know, after that moment, I could just relax and enjoy my round because I knew I'd never beat him, and it wasn't about that anymore. Instead, I could just learn from him. You know, watch him and see what he was doing right because I knew that he had not chosen to golf with me because there was something about me that was special. I didn't deserve the right to be golfing with him, and I would never beat him. And so that's what this truth does for us. It brings humility. It brings clarity. We are welcome at the banquet of God's uh, dinner because nothing because of what we've done. Nothing because of our intellect, but freely and by his grace. And that's one thing, the first thing that the Corinthians needed to know. The second thing they needed, I think, was to embody the fullness of the gospel. Um, At the heart of the gospel, as Paul describes it here, are some paradoxes, some opposite things that are both true at the same time. And he uses the term veil, which we mentioned, and that's a loaded term. uh, Because the term veil, the Corinthians would have known, is an allusion to the book of Exodus, where Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down off the mountain, uh, his countenance is bright. It's so shiny that the people ask him to put a veil over his face because it's annoying uh, to even be in his presence. But now look at what Paul says. God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. Both those words, veil and face, are a clear allusion to the Old Testament. And so what does this mean? Well, it means a few things. Um, There's a a pastor author by the name of John Piper. He's written a a lot of books, and I have to confess I've only read two uh, of his. But uh, the most recent, one of the most recent ones is called A Peculiar Glory. And his point there is that one of the marks of someone who has come to believe is that they are struck by, they're able to recognize in the person of Christ this peculiar glory And this glory is most evident in several paradoxes that we see in the life of Jesus. He is the wisest on the one hand, but he's also the most humble. He's the most learned, but he's also the one children want to be with the most. He welcomes them into his presence. He's the most holy, but he's also the one that people will most often find with the outsiders, with unholy people, the crooked businessman, the prostitute, the woman with a physical ailment that makes her an outcast. Even though he's the most holy, he is spending the most time reaching out and loving these people. And this is a peculiar glory. Jesus wasn't bright and shiny all the time. He was on one occasion, but most of the time he wasn't. So somehow for Paul, 
He is God's glory on display. His glory is seen in these paradoxes. And, you know, I found it's, it's easy for us as individuals to get pulled to one side or the other, to embrace wisdom but not to have humility, or to emphasize God's holiness but not to emphasize his grace, to be in a sense like Mount Sinai. You know, God says, don't touch the mountain. And some people can be like that untouchable because of their emphasis on holiness. Um, But, you know, Christ has, in a sense, climbed that mountain and died on it. And now he remains not just perfectly holy, but perfectly gracious as well. And a church that is embodying these paradoxes of Christ is displaying his glory most clearly and being a compelling uh, object lesson, being a compelling witness to the community that it's in. So number two is embody the fullness of the gospel. Thirdly and lastly, Paul would say, embrace suffering as a picture of the gospel. Let's read again, uh, or at least I'll read these verses, uh, 7 through 12. They're pretty well known, but they bear reading again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And we'll stop reading there. New Testament book of James, I realized just this week um, that the uh, book starts with a command by James to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I don't know why I never realized before, but... uh, he basically introduces himself, and that's the first sentence he speaks. It's one of the hardest sentences in the whole Bible. What a way to start a letter. You know, how do you consider it pure joy to go through things that almost by definition are meant to take away your joy? What does he mean? And I think the answer is here in these verses we just read, because the last verse I read there actually says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our mortal body. You see, we can't have it both ways. We can either save our own narrative about ourselves, the story that we're writing that we think will give us happiness, or, I'm afraid, on the other hand, we can let God use trials to put that narrative to death insofar as it's at odds with his purpose for us. And we can do that in order that he can write his own story in our lives. You know, I've known for many years that I'm supposed to, to do this, to take specifically to take joy in trials. And I doubt this is the first time you've ever heard you know, this verse too, but I realized recently that even though I knew it, I didn't believe it. I thought I believed it, but I didn't really believe it until fairly recently when I knew it not just in my head, but that I really understood and started to have joy, actual joy, like not just fake joy that, well, I'm supposed to be happy and paint a smile on my face, but actually found joy in trials. And here's how that happened. God has shown me an aspect of myself that I'm becoming apart from him, something bad that I'm becoming apart from him. And then he's revealed to me how several trials, really difficult, unpleasant things, are there specifically to drive that out. And when I look at this side, what I, what's happening in my life, 
in and of my own nature, where I am headed without him, and then I compare that to the fact that God has not forgotten about me. He is alive, he's real, and he's bringing things into my life to form me and to make me into his image. That is something to actually take joy over. When you look at where you would be apart from the grace of God and you say, he is not letting me be comfortable. He's poking me, he's prodding me, he's causing me pain, and why? Because he is making me a creature of beauty and light and radiance and love and compassion. And if I can't find joy in that, then something's wrong. And thankfully, by the grace of God, I am starting to find actual joy in those things. And that brings us to the final verses of chapter 16 and 17, uh, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Look at this phrase, outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed. You know, there's a great example of this outward wasting away literally taking place. I mean, there are many examples, but uh, I learned recently of David Brainerd. I think probably most of you know who Jonathan Edwards is. Probably fewer people have heard of David Brainerd. And Jonathan Edwards greatly admired David Brainerd and wrote a biography about him after his death. Brainer enrolled at Yale University, but he had to go home because he contracted an illness that caused him to spit up blood. And now they think that was probably tuberculosis. And when he uh, returned to Yale a few years later, um, it was going through some really hard times. The Great Awakening had had some effect. And the students uh, were starting to think that many of their professors were not truly believers. They were accusing them of not really being believers. And uh, as a teacher myself, that would have been bothering. (laughs) Would have been disconcerting, right? Um, But the faculty in response said that any student making these accusations would be kicked out of the university. And right around this time, they had Jonathan Edwards come speak at commencement, thinking that he would side with the faculty. But he didn't. He sided with the students. And the upshot of this for... um, David Brainerd was that he could not finish his studies at Yale. And the reason this was especially difficult is because at that time in Connecticut, if you wanted to be a pastor, you had to have attended Yale or Harvard or some school in Europe. So instead, David Brainerd began a ministry to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. And he devoted his life uh, to working among them, to being Jesus to them, and even translating the book of Psalms for them. He was offered several pastoring jobs, but he refused to leave the Delaware Indians until his health became so terrible uh, that he moved into the home of Jonathan Edwards and uh, lived his last remaining year of life, died at a very young age. Jonathan Edwards' daughter, uh, Jerusha, took care of him uh, for that year. And um, not long after Edwards died, in fact, uh, Brainerd died only a few months later, Uh, Jonathan Edwards' daughter died of tuberculosis as well. And they were buried together in a cemetery in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. Now, if I were Jonathan Edwards, I probably wouldn't have wanted to then write a biography. He actually stopped a book that he was writing and wrote the biography of David Brainerd called The Life of David Brainerd. What you realize is that David Brainerd became the father of the modern missions movement. He's at the headwaters of the modern missions movement. People like William Carey, Jim Elliott, Adoniram Judson all trace 
their call to missions back to David Brainerd. Outwardly, he was wasting away, but his life was not a waste at all because inwardly he was being renewed day by day. And this kind of renewal in the face of suffering, you know, I don't know what different types of suffering um, you're going through. I know what I'm going through. But whatever it is, to be inwardly renewed in the face of suffering is an undeniable and powerful witness to our community and to our world. And when it features in a local church, when its members are being renewed, even though outwardly they are facing trials, emotional trials, personal trials, health trials, the gospel can be on full display. So number one, understand why the gospel is rejected. It is freeing and it is humbling. Embody the fullness of the gospel, truth and grace combined, and embrace suffering as a picture of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you came full of grace, truth, wisdom, and compassion All of these things, God, we we so often want one and not the other. But God, you have called us to be communities of faith in which your holiness and grace, uh, your patience and your wisdom, these things are on full display. And that's a high calling. But God, we we truly do thank you for the trials that you're, you're bringing and that you have brought in the lives of each one of us because we recognize, God, that you are making us into something, a community that could not become um something to your glory apart from those things. And we thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.